The University of Illinois College of Medicine has three campuses and accepts students not only from Illinois, not only from the rest of the United States, but from around the world. However, application volume increased by roughly 50% this past cycle. How can you get in? I'm talking during this episode, the University of Illinois College of Medicine's Assistant Dean of Admissions and Recruitment, who not only dissects its admissions process, but provides a wonderful and experienced perspective on the overall medical school application process. She has an important message for you. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 423rd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me today. Before we meet our guest, I want to invite you to accept this next med school admissions webinar, How to Create Successful Secondary Applications. It's a free webinar, which I will present on July 8th, 2021. Secondary applications are on a flood your calendar and consciousness in the weeks ahead, and maybe even have already started doing so. You have to turn them around quickly and effectively, but how? We've got you covered. Registered for How to Create Successful Secondary Applications for free at accepted.com slash 423 webinar. And now a little information about our guest today. Dr. Leila Amiri joined the University of Illinois College of Medicine team in 2017. As Assistant Dean for Admissions and Recruitment, she oversees admissions and recruitment for all three campuses of the College of Medicine. She is a passionate advocate for holistic review and admissions and a strong supporter for students in helping them achieve their academic and professional goals. Dr. Amiri has spent her her career rather in higher education, starting as a peer advisor in the biology department. Over this time, she has worked with a variety of students at seven different institutions as an advisor, faculty member, administrator, and mentor. In the medical education arena, she has engaged in leadership at the national level, serving as a liaison for the Committee on Admissions for the Association of American Medical Colleges, the beloved AAMC, and as an AAMC holistic review facilitator, working with other medical schools and admissions committees on how to include holistic review in their process. She is currently serving as the vice chair for the BAMD affiliate group. Dr. Amiri, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you. My pleasure. Can you give us, to start, just a, a basic overview of the UI School of Medicine program, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Absolutely. So we're one of the larger medical schools in the country. We admit 300 students every year to three different campuses. We're very mission driven um, in that the mission is to advance health for everyone with outstanding education, outreach, healthcare, uh, research, and really um, with a focus of social justice and social responsibility at the core of what we do. And what I really appreciate about our program is that we um, are so diverse not only in the student body and the faculty, but also the programming that we offer. So we're able to offer, for example, urban-focused healthcare programs all the way up to rural medicine-focused programs. I noticed actually that you had both rural, a a focus on rural medicine and a focus on urban medicine and another focus on global medicine, which is, again, would support the the diversity in your your program. Um, What's a common misconception about the University of Illinois College of Medicine that you would like to dispel? 
I think because we are a multi-campus school, I think sometimes students feel that the um, educational programming may be different on the different campuses. And so once we um, implemented our new curriculum in 2017, we actually have standalone four-year medical programs on each of our sites with live instruction um, and curriculum that's delivered simultaneously and assessed simultaneously. Now, the feel of the curriculum will be a little different, obviously, because they're in different locations, but the, um, the educational experience is very similar. And the other thing that I want to point out is that we don't have a a specific type of student that we're looking for, right? Because we are old and because we are big, um, we like to welcome students to join us with with whatever passions they have. And the joy for us is to helping them achieve their goals. Okay, great. Is there any difference in size of class between the three campuses? There is. So our Chicago campus is our oldest and largest campus. We matriculate 180 to Chicago and followed by Peoria with 65 and Rockford with 55. Got it. Okay. And is there, I know that you can study any of those topics. So I mentioned urban, global, and rural, and you probably can highlight other areas, but can you study any of those in any of those campuses or are you better, let's say, focusing on urban medicine in Chicago? Right. So um, we do, so those scholarly concentration programs are focused on the different campuses because of resources and faculty members that have those interests. So urban medicine is restricted to the Chicago campus. Oral medicine, for example, is a specific program that's on our Rockford campus. Um, But in comparison to those, we have something like our clinician executive medicine program, which is for those students who are interested in uh, leadership roles and complex healthcare delivery systems. That's available to all students on all three sites because Needless to say, they will serve as leaders wherever they decide to end with their careers. Okay. Now let's let's turn to the application. What do you hope to learn from the secondary that you don't learn in the primary? The primary is pretty comprehensive. The, The primary is comprehensive. And because it is a general application that needs to be palatable to all medical schools, I think it's a good snapshot of what the student has accomplished until this point, their academic accomplishments, obviously their test scores and in the context of them. The secondary for all schools, including us, is specific to the information that we're seeking from the student. And because we have the three sites and because we have unique opportunities on the three sites, that's really the tool that we use to help determine fit of the student for the specific campus that they're interested um, in and how the resources that we offer will fit the um, goals that they have for themselves. All right. Now, do, do the students request a particular campus or do you assign them to a campus or is it kind of a matching? It's a matching. So based on the um, based on what they shared with us in their secondary and all of the other experiences that they bring to the table during the screening um, process, we'll, we'll find a campus that we feel is the best fit for them. Then it goes to the um, Committee on Admissions. They agree with that recommendation or they'll make a different suggestion. We'll invite the student to meet with us on the campus. It was virtual this year, but in times when it's not virtual. And then when we offer acceptance to a student, we ask them to rank the campuses based on their um, desired placement. And so we work with the content of the application as well as as what the student is asking for. And obviously, if they're accepted to one of our extracurricular programs, then that has, if that has a specific campus assignment, they'll be assigned to that campus. Any plans to go MCAT optional uh, this year? 
Not at this time. Okay. We, um, we, you know, we adopt holistic admissions. And so we, we look at the grades and we look at the MCAT for two reasons. The grades tell us how the student will um Will, will, will function in our curriculum, right? So how much academic stamina do they have? How much science load can they handle? And will they need additional support as they join us? And it's a similar thing for the MCAT. Now, uh, the STEP score is obviously going to be a pass-fail type of experience in 2022, but it's still an indicator for us of how well the student can handle standardized exams. And will they need some extra support from us in terms of learning how to master these standardized tests that don't go away, right? So there's the multiple step pieces and then there's the recertification that they have to do. And so really those are indicators for us on how well we can support the student that's joining us. Okay, do you ever provide say additional support for a student whose MCAT isn't necessarily where you'd like it to be? We, we Academic do. support, so, I mean, or remedi- remediation, maybe. Absolutely. So we have a couple of pipeline programs that are specifically designed for students who perfectly match our mission, and we feel that they could benefit from some academic enrichment. Mm-hmm. So we have a full year pipeline program. We also have just a summer pipeline program, and embedded in those programs is um, you know, the tools that they would need in order to ma- manage a complicated medical curriculum. Then we have a, I like to call them our army of learning specialists. And so we have a a network of individuals that are in all three of our campuses who work very closely with students. And so part of the incoming information, which is actually, we had a meeting yesterday about this. Let's look at the incoming class and see who may need some additional support and and what areas. That's just, I I am really impressed. I'm not aware of too many schools that offer that. I mean, I know many schools have post-bac programs or pipeline programs, that kind of thing, but actually, you know, academic support or enrichment support um, in medical school, I'm, I'm not that as, as aware of. Um, does the University of Illinois screen secondaries before sending them out? Is there a certain minimum MCAT that one should have before you apply? Because otherwise you're not going to get a secondary or something along those lines. GPA. Well, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, I don't have a number that is the threshold below which you a student will not receive a secondary, but we are realistic about it as well. So we, we do want students to come to us with a science GPA that's around a 3.0 so that okay. they were at least maintaining a B average. And then the MCAT will, you know, we ask um, in our secondary, we also ask for the SAT and ACT, for example, as part of that you know, academic support that we provide. So if they're performing an MCAT, in the lower teens and 20s, we are not going to send out a secondary because, you know, what's missing there maybe isn't the content knowledge, but how to take a test. And because how to take a test is not part of what we do, we do support right. students in, um, in test preparation, but how to take a standardized test so that they're performing at least at the 50th percentile will be important for us. But it's not a one-on-one. Right, because there's first generation and college considerations, there's uh, first generation immigrant considerations. So there's varying things that we will also look at. Um, so it's not AI driven for us. It is literally opening up each of the 7,500 applications that we got this year. And you you manually screen. We do. Wow. wow. Okay. We do. And that that also, I mean, going to your social justice mission. I mean, if somebody really just doesn't have a chance, you're saving them the application fee also. 
you know, we we did an experiment. Well, it was an experiment because there was um, there were some challenges with the MCAT administration because of the pandemic this past sure. year. And so many students were concerned about their ability to take the MCAT and when it would, um, you know, when it would come through. We released secondary to all students this year. Okay. And so we did have some applicants that submitted, you know, applications to us um, where really we wouldn't have released a secondary to them had it been a different year. And um, I, I feel that applicants have all the data available to them based on the MSAR and what's out there. You know, the decision is theirs to submit the application or not. And it's our way to, to support them with that decision making because oftentimes they feel, you know, if I could just get in front of the admissions committee, but the screening piece is the part that will allow that or not. Right. Hope springs eternal. Um, you know, I, I think, I think holistic re- review is wonderful, but I think sometimes it does create false hopes. You know, people, sometimes want to read or see what they want to read or see. And that's mm-hmm. that not that's not really holistic. That's looking at what you want to read or see. And if you want to focus on your experience and not your grades and test scores, then that might lead to, to false hope. Um, and I think I think screening under those circumstances actually makes a lot of sense. But obviously it also takes time. <laughs> so yeah. What does the the Casper add to your uh, evaluative process and your insight into the applicant? That's interesting. You know, up until this year, we weren't certain. We were we were asking students to take the Casper, and we weren't we weren't certain really how to use it. Um, I have friends that have very specific ways and metrics that they use for the Casper. So the group that graduated this year was the first group that um, was uh, went through our new curriculum since it was implemented in seventeen, and we had Casper scores for them. So there's so there's fun data that we're digging into. So what we've seen thus far is that there's a, a, a correlation between uh, our students' professional identity formation and their CASPER scores. Really? So that um, because the curriculum basically asks our students to, you know, describe how they see themselves as a physician at each part of the curriculum. And basically, as they're going through, you know, in the beginning, there's uncertainty and there's anxiety. And as they're going through the process, as expected, they become more and more confident. And, and, and so we saw a great um, we saw a great correlation there. And also the um, knowing where their place was in the healthcare field. We saw that. Um, so now we're digging into the data of how good of you know, team players they are. So we have some um, data from our, our own students on they evaluate each other in their um, problem-based learning and their team-based learning activities. And so it's not complete data because it's not required. Not everyone fills out all of the surveys, for example, all of the times. But based on the data that we have, it looks like there might be a correlation there for us as well, that the students with the higher Catholic scores seem to be better um, team members in their TBL groups. So um, it gives us those things that we don't see from the application, right? Because even if we do have a letter of recommendation from a, um, a PI, still that's one snapshot of their understanding of the student. We, we still don't know how they are as a peer. And because the culture is so important for us, it's giving us that type of information. Fascinating. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Okay. Now, um, what are your, what are you planning for inter- interview day during this upcoming cycle? I mean, I know it's hard to plan now anything, cause, but things to be, mm-hmm. seem to be opening up. You've had the experience of the virtual interviews this past year. Obviously, there were years and years of, of in-person interviews. What are, you, what are you planning for this upcoming year? 
So we did make the decision to remain virtual this next year, just because we weren't certain what would happen with um, when the, when the cold season rolls around and if there's going to be resurgence or not. And so we will be virtual again this, this next year. We felt the virtual interview process went well for us. I mean, we feel that, um, there every year there were students that we wouldn't we were not able to interview and basically it was because it was financially not possible for them to get the flight to Chicago you know everything else that goes with coming to a new city and so we had no candidates cancel interviews with us this year because or decline our offer because they couldn't um, visit us there was also a sense of community that I was concerned that we wouldn't have. We had the night before meet and greets with our current students. We had monthly meet and greets with our accepted students and our student ambassadors. And then we had a whole host of events after Second Look. I mean, to the point where attendance was declining and we canceled the last few because I feel that the incoming class had had enough of meeting the people and you know having a sense of the culture. So those are the things that we will carry over to next year. The only thing that we're looking forward to be being able to do if we get permission to do that is maybe have groups of accepted students come on for site visits during the year. Whereas this year, we opened it up to interviews after Second Book once um, Chicago had moved into phase three and a number of vaccinations were going up and we were able to open up the buildings to small groups of students. And our students were telling us that the accepted students had really great time just coming in, seeing the building, yeah. meeting some other people. So if we're able to implement that for this next year, I think that'll be great. Yeah, I can I can really see that, that it, it makes a difference just knowing where you're going. Exactly. Yeah, just and, a, seeing people, yeah. meeting people, thinking, I can I can be here, you know. Right, exactly. How 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 would I, you know, how would I fit here? Or can I see myself here? I was talking to a student yesterday who, um, you know, just moved to Chicago, got an apartment close to campus based on what other students were saying. And it was cute. He said, you know, on, on days when I'm not studying, I just show up on campus and walk around and soak it up because I've, I've never been here. I, I haven't yet even explored downtown and the lakefront or anything. I'm just taking advantage of being on campus. No, that's great. So we do miss that. Yeah, well, I think everybody has missed it and is looking forward to kind of going back to it. If at a point in time, like where let's say COVID is really in our rearview mirror and things are back to normal, whatever normal is going to be, will your do you think that the University of Illinois' new normal will include a virtual option for interviews? Absolutely. We've already decided that particularly to accommodate those students that I mentioned. And we always have students that are on a Fulbright scholarship or out of the country or they're doing something with Peace Corps. And they basically get a two week window to come back to the States to do their interviews. And so, you know, they're trying to schedule five or seven interviews in a 10 day window darting around the country. It's really stressful for them. And um, we obviously will accommodate those types of situations which are unique and really inconvenient candidates. And we also felt for second look as well. Even last year, before we knew what was going to happen, you know, we had a virtual second look with very little time to plan because we went and shut down on the 16th and second look was less than a month away, literally three weeks away for us. Uh, Last year, we decided whatever happens, we'll have a hybrid model for those who are not able to join us because of work. So this year was 
I mean, it wasn't great that we weren't together, but we had students who were at work and they got permission from their supervisor, for example, for a couple hours because there were presentations that they really wanted to take advantage of and that were not going to be recorded. So they were able to join us, even though they were still, you know, back in Philadelphia, Houston, wherever, wherever they were. Okay. Yeah, that was quite a time a year ago. Uh, Per per the MSAR, in 2019-20, which I think was the class that we were actually talking about, the University of Illinois College of Medicine received a total of 5,015 applications and matriculated 299, you mentioned 300 in the the class, or a little more than 5%. Now, you mentioned that you had 7,000 applications this cycle. Obviously, applications are up. How on earth, and yet, yet you still want to end up with a class of 300? How do you win it down? What makes an applicant jump off the application page for you in a positive way and join that very fortunate 5%? Sure. So, you know, we've worked really hard to have a screening model that's reflective of the mission. And so the screening rubric that we have really mirrors the mission that we have. And so we look for candidates that exhibit excellence in one or more of the areas that are, um, you know, pillars for our mission. And and that comes through the experiences section, right? So they've spent a lot of time, for example, with an underserved community, or they've spent a lot of time doing research, or they've spent a lot of time clinically um, as one of the pillars that we have, where there's excessive, you know, really high levels of service that they've done for a particular um underserved community addressing structural violence, for example. And um, then, you know, then it goes back to the rest of the application. So now let's look at your personal statement. Now let's look at your letters of recommendation. Once those things all come together, that's the applicant that we would invite um, to join us. Because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of students say, I just want to get in. I don't care where I go. And I think they're, short, you know, selling themselves short. They have to be at a place that's supportive of who they are as an individual and and what they aspire to become. Because if they don't like the culture or the community or the mission of that place, they have no choice but to live with that and learn how to be that because that's the only way we know how to do business, right? Right. And so it was interesting in my time when I was a pre-med advisor, they would say, well, I'm going to ignore those things. I'll just do my own thing. You can't do that. No, right? I mean, no. the only way you're that you get through is to do what they're expecting of you to do. And so basically we look for that. So I, I say when the application makes sense and by making sense, it's basically you're saying there's they're stating something in their personal statement about their motivation. And then I look at the experiences section. It's supported by where they've spent their time and where they've spent their efforts. And the letters are supportive of that as well. And um and that's a candidate that we'll invite. So we're, we're slow in sending out invitations for interview because this process is, uh, you know, a labor of love. And it passes through so many, passes through three different, um, you know, checkpoints before, a, before an individual is invited to actually interview with us. Right. Yeah. They, um, we've, I've also obviously talked to applicants who are just entirely focused on their GPA and, and MCAT and, or they want, I remember talking to one applicant earlier this year who wanted to apply to 60 schools. There's obviously, there's no fit there. <laughs> that's just, that's just throwing darts at a dartboard or maybe looking at the rankings and I'm going, I'm applying to this range, you know, that's not a way to choose a school. It's not a very effective yeah. way to choose a school. Um, now, when you look, 
is there anything that you're seeking in applicants? Now, you mentioned that in 2017, you had a curriculum um, update. Is there anything that you're looking for in applicants that you didn't look for, let's say, before, the, before you know, two years ago or five years ago, which will soon be, you know, 2021 is half over almost, um, or 10 years ago? Something's changed. You know, it's hard to say. So, I've been with the institution, as you mentioned earlier, since 2017. And while we had a, um, we've, we've recently undergone, you know, the first ever strategic planning for the college, you know, university that's over 100 years old. And the mission has always been the same. If you look at the history of why the institution was established, it was basically that social responsibility. And so the mission hasn't really changed. Um, it's been, it's been relatively the same since I've, since I've been here with, um, looking at candidates that are a good fit for our, you know, for our mission and students that would fit well with our community. Our patient population is really um, important to us, as I believe it is for every medical school that students are applying, you know, to. And so we we really look for the student that has the humility to understand that, you know, it's a privilege to, to take it, to take care of the individuals that entrust us with that. And that hasn't changed. And I, I, I can't imagine it ever being any different, even 10 years ago, but I can't speak for 10 years ago. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Now, you know, sometimes in the, in the talking to applicants, I hear that, you know, I have this kind of clinical exposure, but I don't have that kind. Is, is there any kind of clinical exposure? I think I mentioned to you, we, we spoke uh, late last week that I was, uh, on a, on a forum and on the forum, somebody was arguing that you had to have shadowing and without shadowing, your app was dead on arrival. And we spoke to a, um, uh, an applicant this week who was rejected and got feedback that, that the rejection was because this person didn't have enough clinical exposure, but this person had been taking care of an ill parent for several years with serious medical issues. And, uh, the consultant that the applicant spoke to said that's that's against AMC guidelines. That that kind of serious hours with a with a ill parent should have counted for clinical exposure. Um, so, is there any like is shadowing mandatory or is it the worst kind of clinical exposure? Which I've also heard. Um, yeah. Is scribing great or is it glorified shadowing? Is uh, being an EMT the way to go? Is it you know? Is there is there a great form of clinical exposure, or is it again a matter of kind of following your interests and passions in order to make sure that the field is right for you? I think it's the second one, right? Because schools will look at what they want differently. So I've I've been doing this side of of medical school, you know, admissions for ten years now, and so through the four different programs that I've been, the approaches to shadowing have been different. And I was shadowing was what I'm sorry, I missed that was different. Uh So I was at a school where we did require three shadowing experiences. We wanted we wanted two with primary care physicians and one with a specialist. And so it was very prescribed Uh and all the way to, um, you know, now where we don't care if a student has shadowing or not. And and the, the challenge with shadowing is that it is not an easily attainable experience because of HIPAA regulations and where students are. I mean, we admit students from very underserved rural colleges, for example. And the local community has to drive 
many hours uh, or at least an hour and a half to get to a physician. And so there's one doctor for you know 25,000 people. There's no opportunity for, for shadowing to happen there, right? And so, uh, and how, you know, we would lose the opportunity to train a great physician that would go back to that underserved community if we were denying them admission just because they didn't have shadowing. But what I can say to students is that, you know, you can get a sense of what the school's going to be like by looking at these types of things, right? Because we, I feel we have to meet students where they are. What I expect of them is to show me that they understand what being in a clinical environment will be like, that it's not going to all be as sexy as, you know, ER is. It's not all going to be house. It's it's going to be- It's all going to be ugly happy. And do, right. It's going to be dealing with individuals where they're when they're sick and most vulnerable and not feeling well and probably not very pleasant and understanding of all of that. And however that understanding comes to the student, you know, it's fine for us. So if they need to do some shadowing, I mean, it's great, but we get people with hundreds of hours of shadowing and their takeaway is always the same thing, which is communication between the physician and patient is important. And everybody knows that. I know that not being a doctor because yeah, I've been a, a patient either. times, you know? And so I would say there isn't a particular thing that's the, you know, the right answer for all schools. I think students will have to look to see what the programs are looking for, but, but where they can be in an environment where care is being provided, I think is most important that, that providing care to a loved one is probably even the most difficult because especially if they live with them, Right. We have multi-generational, um, you know, family structures right now. And so they're living with their grandparents, taking them to the doctor, bringing them back, making sure their medications are there, helping them bathe, helping them eat. What more can there be? And there's also the part of it that touches an individual's heart where it may not be happening when you're with a different person. Now, I know that some of the challenge with that has been. Um, that the clinical experience is only with a loved one, and would the person be able to show this kind of compassion to someone that's not related to them? Right. So, um, or in a in a clinical setting, the other or is it, right in a clinical setting. So, at the end of the day, what I always tell students is, you don't want to have questions there. So, if the bulk of your clinical experience has been with a family member, do the absolute best that you possibly can to get some that's not at home to offset that, to show that you actually do have that in you to want to take care of people when you can. Right. And what about virtual shadowing or virtual experiences, clinical experiences? What do you think of those? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, they, they run the extreme between, you know, sitting there and listening to a doctor explain their experiences in medical school 40 years ago at a international medical school, which has, you know, little relevance to our students now, all the way up to um, physicians bringing their patient with them onto the screen and having the conversation. Right. So um, uh, I would say if they have to pay for it, they need to be cautious and um, they should have an understanding of what they're going to see. There's never any harm in sitting with a physician and learning of their experience. But I don't know sitting there and learning about, you know, what they did in med school in a different country is going to be that helpful to them, unless if the conversation is in the broader scope of public health and, and access to health care and things right. like that. Or it's complemented by more hands-on clinical. Exactly. Right. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you and I spoke about a week ago, and you mentioned that many applicants make the mistake of comparing themselves to others. I thought it was a great point. Can you expand on that point? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was a, a wonderful point, and I'd like all our listeners to hear what you have to say on it. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, you know, it's, and I think anyone that listens to this will know they've either asked this or they've had this question asked of them. Everything being equal, who would you take, right? And what I want your listeners to understand is that it is never the case that everything is equal, right? So it's very important for applicants to understand that when we are looking at you, we're looking at the whole context of the application, Right. So we're looking at your lived experiences, you know, what part of the country you're from, other languages you speak, socioeconomic status, everything, where you went to school, all of those things and how that fits in the context of the institution. And so I will tell you of the 7,500 students that we are applications that we had this year, no two applications were identical. I think when students tell me everything being equal is a GPA and MCAT, right? And I can list, you know, a whole bunch of applications with a 4.0 and a, you know, 518, and they're not the same. I even say if you're twins and triplets, your applications, everything is not identical, right? Because even though the parents are the same and you're growing up in the same household, how you respond to stimuli is different. And so the experiences that you have are are unique. And so it's it's important for you to help us understand you know, the lens that you're seeing things through and to know that things are not being, things are not considered equally, right? They need to be equitable, but they're not equal. So you're going to be the unique person that you are applying to my unique medical school. And that's how those two things have to match. So don't be devastated if a friend with a 3.8 and a, you know, 517 didn't get in. How are you going to get in with your 3.7 and 512? your context might be significantly different than theirs, right? Or the individual that you mentioned that's applying to 60 schools with really high numbers, but not a lot of activities. Um, So every conversation that I have with every student who is um, either a reapplicant or a new applicant to our program, that's where we start the conversation, that I want them to understand that the context that they bring to the application is unique. So one thing that they struggle with is, you know, how do I answer the diversity question? How do I say what I'm going to bring to the school? How many other people do I have that are applying to me that are you? Nobody, it's just you, right? And so the fact that you're a math major or bio major, that's not the only thing that makes you, right? And so helping us understand how you function in those types of things, are um, pieces that students could pull into those types of conversations. I removed that question from my secondary a long time ago because I know it created so much anguish. (laughs) (laughs) But I know it's still out there. Yeah, it is. It is. It does create a lot of of anguish. You're right. Um, I'm kind of chuckling because one of the things I always say, you know, I get the question, I'm I'm a bio major. I'm this overrepresented group. I'm that overrepresented group. How, you know, I said, look, forget the label, forget the group. At the end of the day, you want to belong to a group of one. (laughs) That's you. And that's, that's your job. That's everybody's job. Um, If you focus on the things that you have in common with everybody else applying or significant subgroups in the application pool, you're going to fail to, to create that group of one. 
But okay, what's another common mistake that you see applicants make during the application process? Um, so, I mean, the standard ones, I think you've probably heard and everyone's talked about, you know, the typos and um, naming the wrong school in the secondary, those things um, still happen, even though they shouldn't happen. I would say, I think sometimes our applicants forget that every interaction that they have with us is basically them on interview, right? So it's not only the 30 minutes that you're sitting in front of a faculty member. It's all of the engagements and interactions that you have with us in terms of the voicemails that you leave for us and the pointed emails that you sometimes send um, to us. So um, I think that's a mistake that that applicants often make is that they don't realize that we remember those things, right? Or if you're calling and leaving an ugly message on a voicemail, I mean, everyone's got caller ID right now, right? And we've got your application. So um, I hope this doesn't encourage you to use a different number or a Google number to, to make your phone calls to the med schools to which you're interested in applying to. But it's basically understand that that's part of the context as well. I think um, students forget um, about that sometimes. And I think the other thing that they forget is we are as eager to admit students to our program as they are excited and eager to join us, right? So we see ourselves as your partners in this process. And so we're not on two different sides of the table. I mean, we see ourselves as, as your partner holding your hand going through this process. And so I think um, you should feel comfortable to reach out to us, to ask questions um, that you have and ask for clarification, not for things that are easily accessible, obviously, but if there's something that you're really confused about or unsure about, I would encourage students to reach out to the schools. And again, that's an indicator of us, right? If I am unwilling to answer the question, if I don't answer your question, then maybe I'm not the right place for you because I'm I'm supposed to be on my best behavior as, as I'm interacting with applicants, right? Okay. So so that, you're both supposed to be on your best behavior, exactly. both evaluating, right? Exactly. And so when I was a pre-med advisor, I always told my students, if the schools are not treating you with the dignity and respect that you should be treated with, they don't deserve you as a student. Because if this is their behavior when it's their best foot forward, what happens when you're there? I mean, they will do everything they can to get you through. But what does that journey look like while you're there? And so it's really important. And that's part of the culture thing, right? So if you email me and you ask a question, I don't respond. I don't ever respond or if I respond 10 days later and I apologize because it's been really busy and, you know, we're prioritizing, that's very different. Right. Right. For sure. Service. One, you, your comments sparked a question in my mind. If you are interviewed, when you have your one-on-one -on -one interview, does the, has the interviewer reviewed your primary and secondary application or is it just a resume or what, what information does the interviewer have about the interviewee? So our interviewers, our faculty interviewers are partially blinded to the application. Okay. So we don't give them grades. We don't give them MCAT because they trust that we're only interviewing individuals who are going to be successful in our program. Um, we share the personal statement because we feel that that speaks to our mission. And we share the supplemental because that speaks to the um, unique opportunities that we have that align with the experiences and opportunities that the student would like to have. We don't share the experiences intentionally because we don't have standardized questions that are asked where we give them areas that we would like them to explore. But, you know, the feel of the interview may be a little different. And so we allow the candidate to bring forth those experiences that are most relevant to the conversation that they're having at that point. Okay. 
Great. And how do you view letters of intent or correspondence from either students who just haven't heard from you, students who've interviewed and haven't heard from you, or from waitlisted applicants? Because they get very anxious. Right. So uh, I'm a sucker for updates. Okay. I love them. Okay. And um, we have a platform that makes it really easy for students to um, update their application. They basically just upload a PDF and they can upload as many PDFs as they want. Um, we, and you're right, we, there are some students who we will, um, we've interviewed or maybe they've been waitlisted or they've been placed on delayed decision and they don't hear from us. And this is basically years of experience, right? Is that when a student is waitlisted, and we email them again and tell them, hey, you're still on our wait list. Um, I got feedback from students that said um, the first blow was enough. You know, don't keep reminding me that even though you've accepted more students, I was still not good enough in their mind. Right. That's, so that's not my language. That's what they said to me. Yeah. And so I took that to heart. And so that's why we don't communicate if a student has been placed on delayed decision between them. And, um, you know, this year we practice a little with giving fewer, um, some updates. And for the most part, it seemed to go well. And for a handful of students, it created a lot of anxiety. Really? They read, and you mentioned this earlier, they read into it what they thought that they were reading, not actually the words that were there. So, for example, if it was, you know, our, can't, our sites are at capacity now and we can't do reassignments, what they understood was that we are never going to reassign anyone this year. And given that you're not reassigning anyone, you know, what's going to happen to me? And so this is this is the balance, right, that um, I think our, our applicants at this time maybe don't spend all the time to read as much as they need to. Um, so I hope you all don't get mad at me for, for me saying this, but really take the time to read the website, read the emails. Um, read the communications that are shared with you. I, I received feedback from one um, candidate this year that said, your instructions were not clear. In your instructions, you could have written, please read the attachment carefully. I felt that that was implicit in having the attachment. Under yes, the I would say that is implicit in having an attachment, yeah. I heard, I'm not a medical school admissions director, I heard from uh, a business school admissions director that a certain, they wrote to a certain student, I don't remember what the means was, that this individual was accepted, and they included a scholarship offer. And the student responded, thanked them for the acceptance, and asked how he could apply for a scholarship. So, now in that case, he would have loved to read what they were writing, but he just didn't read to the bottom. So, um, you know, what can you do? Okay. How do you view applicants or applications from students who have um, non-academic um, blotches, if let's put it that way, flaws? And by that, I mean either an academic infraction or perhaps a criminal record or in a completely different way, um, a background that reflects some kind of emotional issues, emotional illness. You know, so it's... Um it's interesting. I mean, we're people, right? And right. so and no one is going to have, well, I shouldn't say no one, right? Um, so we do have some applicants that have just had blessed lives, right? Blessed academic lives, blessed personal lives, and there just hasn't been anything until they hit medical school. And then there's a concern of what will happen with the first C that you get, right? Um, so it's that that's just part of being human. And, you know, to be human means that there may be things like this. And so we look for frequency. So okay. underage drinking is pretty typical. We see a lot of that. I've seen that everywhere that I've been. And, you know, it, it, it will happen. 
And um, some students get caught, others don't. And so there's a student that gets caught, then there's a student that gets caught over and over and over again. There's a student that gets caught and there's a student that passes out, right? And so um, so it's 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 that kind of, of looking at, so this happened, did you learn from it? And what was your, you know, moving forward? Uh, the most painful ones to read are the ones where there's indicators of plagiarism and the student denies anything and then they blame the faculty member on it. You know, and they're not taking responsibility. Right. So so it's really taking responsibility, because if you think about it, the end of this journey means that, you know, my life is going to be in your hands. Right. And and that's a pretty severe thing. I mean, to me, that makes me freeze. The idea that anyone's life would be in my hands, you know, other than my kids um, and them, them, it's not clinical either. Right. But that's. That's a really scary thing. And so to, to not be willing to take responsibility for things is really uncomfortable for us. Um, and so, so that's the challenge. How a student engages with that and describes that is, is really important for us. And, and, you know, what they do to turn it around. I mean, I've seen incredible stories of students who um, had drinking issues, for example, drunk driving issues, and then they took this to a different level of educating peers and working with the boys and girls clubs and just phenomenal things. And so that that misstep really opened up a whole new um, world for them on ways that they could help others. And, and so that's a very different experience for us. So we we chuck it all up to being human, right? And and we know that you're going to be human when you join us too. And so we're prepared for that as well, right? That's why we have the academic support and resilience centers and, you know, psychologists and, right. and psychiatrists and peer tutors and advising house faculty members because we're human. Right, right. Okay, great. On a forward-looking note, what advice would you give to pre-meds thinking ahead uh, and planning not to apply this cycle, but planning to apply next cycle or the cycle after it, or the cycle after in, that, whenever in the future. In, in, what, in what regard, sorry? Obviously they need to get good grades and they need to yeah. at some point prep for the MCAT. I'm talking more in terms of perhaps um, outlook or experiences that they should go for or, you know, uh, that, that more of that, that kind of thing. So I would say be as creative as you, as you possibly can be. I mean, you know what the categories of experiences are that we're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have to have some kind of clinical experience, you know, that we want to see some kind of leadership from you. We want to see some kind of community service and, um, don't worry about being, you know, what the other, what everyone else is doing. Because, again, it's the context of you that matters. So I'll, I'll give you one example. So we, we have rural students who are applying to us, going to rural um, schools, liberal arts schools, small liberal arts schools. The whole school has 1,100 students in it, you know, all four years of its 1,100 students, smaller wow. than a department on my campus right now, right? And so nobody's doing research because that's not part of what they do. The faculty teach four to five classes, and their tenure and promotion line is based on that. So no opportunity to do research. Yet the student is doing research every time they go back home on their farm and they're messing with the fertilizers or figuring out the feed for the chickens or the cows. They're, they're experimenting. Sure. They're doing research. 
it's within that context, they're understanding trial and error, they're understanding moving things forward. And, and so that's research for us, right? In the context of that student now. Um, and so I think, you know, think about the categories of things that, you know, we're expecting of you. Don't, don't embrace them just for hoops to jump through. So I, I met with a student earlier this year, off the charts metrics, Every activity was 20 hours, 30 hours, you know, 50 hours, really small investment in things because the thinking was these are the things, the boxes that I need to check, right? And so we don't care about the number of boxes that you've checked. What we care about is experiences that you've had and what you've taken taken away from them. So um, have a little bit of everything as much as you can. And I would say engage in it over the period of time. So I am never impressed by 400 hours of anything over the summer. Because to me, you found the little window where you weren't taking classes and you were full-time, whatever that is, the thing is that you're doing, and you were not doing that at any other time. So whatever it is that you're doing needs to be spread out over the four years. You know, sometimes we see students that have zero volunteering except when they go back home and they only volunteer at whatever it is that they were doing, you know, at their home. So they were not a good citizen of the university that they joined, right? So they may have been a good citizen of their hometown, not a good citizen of that university. That's a student that we wouldn't invite because they are not going to embrace our community. They're not going to go out there. They're not going to do street medicine with my students. They're not going to take care of um, the individuals that come through our facilities because you know, they didn't connect to that community. Right. And read. read as much as you possibly can read. Get your firsthand information, right? Listen to all the advice that you can possibly get, but understand that that advice is coming to you from the context of that individual. Sure. How does it apply to you? Don't try to do what they did because it's probably not going to work out. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there anything you would have liked me to ask you? No, I think that 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 one question was the one that I was really hoping. Okay, to well, I included that else. one. Yes. And uh, this has been absolutely delightful. You've given a ton of, I think, fantastic insight and advice, both about the University of Illinois and about medical school admissions overall. So I want to I want to thank you, Dr. Mary, very very much. I think we're almost out of time. You've been very generous. And I want to thank you for joining me and sharing your expertise. I know you have just a few things to take care of. And um, where can listeners learn more about the University of Illinois College of Medicine? Absolutely on our website. You're welcome to visit us at medicine.uic.edu. We also have monthly webinars. I would love it if you would pop in and, you know, join us on our webinars. We've got a listserv that you're welcome to join. And we have a YouTube channel as well. and we'll be at the AMC Virtual Fair on the 24th. So um, let me know how we can let you know more about our program. And you okay. can feel also, you can email us as well, medadmit at uic.edu. Wonderful. Wonderful. Great. Thank you again, Dr. Amiri. We're going to include links in the show notes at seba.com slash 423 to the University of Illinois College of Medicine website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Thank you listeners also for joining me for this wonderful interview with Dr. Amiri. Now, one of the resources that may very well be helpful to you is how to create successful secondary applications. And again, you can register for this free webinar, which is taking place on July 8th at exhibit.com slash 423 webinar. Again, that's exhibit.com slash 423 webinar. 
This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.